I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey listeners, if you like our podcast, you should check out Man Up by Slate. As a young man, journalist Eamon Ismail saw bad attitudes go unchallenged, including his own. But when he found himself nearly 30, married and not far from starting his own family, he realized how much he still had to learn and unlearn about being a man. On Man Up, Eamon invites guests to tell honest, embarrassing, funny, and sometimes disturbing stories about their lives, discussing everything from relationships and family to sex and identity. You can find Man Up on your favorite podcast app or wherever you listen to Chosen Family. As a community, we have a lot of stuff that I think we're not dealing with. Because our stories aren't told a lot, when they are told, we're depicted as a monolith, right? And politically, I understand that it's been important for a long time for us to portray ourselves like that. We're united, we're one, when in fact, we are not. Welcome to Chosen Family. I'm Thomas LeBlanc. I'm Trana Winter, and that was Lauren Morelli you just heard. Lauren is the showrunner of the new Tales of the City reboot. She also has a really interesting personal story as she only came out later in life while she was a writer on Orange is the New Black and actually ended up marrying Samira Wiley, one of the actresses on the show. That's wild. We'll get to talk to Lauren about those experiences a little later. And just a heads up for people with younger listeners, there is some swearing in this episode. So I'm sort of in the middle of a panic right now. I have been living in my apartment for nine years, okay? It shows. <laughs> On my face. <laughs> and my rent is so cheap. I live in such a central location. It literally takes me 15 minutes to get to anywhere I need to be. I'm right around the corner from the library, which I love. I'm right around the corner to the bus station. The 747, which takes me to the airport, is also right at the <laughs> so corner. Specific. The pharmacy is <laughs> down the street. So, you know, this is a very convenient location. And you know me, I'm all about comfort and convenience. But, what's the but? But, <laughs> the building is falling apart. And a little while ago, we ha- I had like a major water leak in my apartment. There was like a downpour. There was water leaking in, coming down from my kitchen and then in my living room. And it was just insane. But your apartment is like filled floor to ceiling with books and records and DVDs. Yes, and I'm not Madonna- a minimalist. And Madonna posters. All of it. But luckily I was home because I was able to like cover stuff to make sure that nothing got ruined. But like what a nightmare. I, I I don't know. Like it's corny, but like I believe in signs, and I'm like, if I know, if, it is if there sign. was rain in your apartment, maybe you need to move. <sighs> and you know, like home is so important, at least for introverts like us. I don't know about we're, you. We're fake extroverts. Fake extroverts. Yeah. And as someone who needs a lot of recharge time, home needs to feel good. Like home needs to feel like a refuge. But you live alone and I have a roommate. I like living with people. Like maybe it's because I don't have siblings. 
granted, my roommate is a triple Scorpio, <laughs> and triple. So is Bjork. By Bjork the way, Bjork is a triple Scorpio. But apparently, if you're a triple Scorpio, either you are Bjork or you're a monk, and that's my roommate. <laughs> He's a monk. Yeah, I don't. I can't imagine living with people like as much yeah, as you're like you're as much as I like get really freaked out in moments where like there's a leak or something goes wrong in the apartment and I don't know how to fix it because I'm not a handy girl. My biggest nightmare in terms of a living situation is like a communal right. setup. So what are you going to do? Do you think you're going to move? Well, I really want to. But now there's we're on the brink of like a housing crisis in Montreal. Like under 2% of all the rental properties are available for rent. So there's very little vacancy. So very little to choose from, which makes it competitive and which drives the prices up on everything. I, I don't know what to do. I mean, for people listening from outside of Montreal, Montreal is still a fairly affordable city. But we've jinxed it. Because yeah. this is what we always keep telling people. <laughs> and now they keep coming here. With their euros. Yeah. You watch a lot of, like, house hunters. Yeah. <laughs> it's like my, it's supposed to be my chill out, relax thing that I put on when I need to unwind. Because it's so mindless, you know. But lately it's been stressing me because right. I'm watching these couples who are so ill-suited, who seem to have only just met each other and now they're shopping for houses. How do you trust that this person is not going to fuck it all up and you're going to be in a financial mess in a year from now? You know what is not being addressed is that I don't think it's right to think that like you can um, put your financial future, your sexual life, and uh, raising a family with the same person. I really don't. I mean, it's asking a lot. I know. <laughs> and I would not want anyone to ask all of that of me. Like, that's going to be a no. So you're watching House Hunter to relax, but then you're super But then I get, I get worried for people. <laughs> 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 because I see it on the show and in life, I just constantly see people making what I think are really bad decisions. Oh, my God. You and could have been a financial advisor. For sure. Or life coach. <laughs> but it also, like, it's sort of, House Hunters is also sort of this, like, fantasy of, like, all my life in terms of, like, material things. Like, the only thing that I really want from life materialistically is a really great home. Like, I know it's the biggest thing on the list, right. but, like, I don't care about cars. I don't care about travel. <laughs> I don't care about, like, expensive clothes. But, like, I just want, and nothing insane, but I just want, like, a really great place to live. Right, just that. Open floor? Open no, concept? No, no, no. No, no open concept? No. There's been, like, a lot of um, writing recently about how people regret taking down all the walls in their home and making it right. open concept. Because they realize everything is out in the open. There's no privacy. There's no escape from the people that you live with. And I'm like, what did you expect? Like, these I... women on the show especially, like, I hate to say it, but there was, like, we, you know, they want these open concepts because they want everyone to be together all the time. That's and the so men are always, like... The men are looking for, like, they'll even take a closet and be like, this is my space. Like, yeah. they they need this, like, They want their, their man cave. Yeah. They're forced to have their financial, sexual, and family future with the same person. They yeah. want a man cave. I get it. Yeah. You know what? My mom is the queen of home staging. I know. Yeah. It's amazing. She started doing that when she turned 40. She became a home stager. So she's helping people declutter and, you know, choosing new furniture and, and put new color in their house in order to sell it. 
and she's really good at what she does, but she furnishes every property with the same style. Like it's all like gray, beige, white um, couches right. and frames. Well, especially when you're trying to sell, you are definitely trying to appeal to like a mass. Yeah, that's it. That's the people. idea. I wouldn't want a house that looks like completely generic, but like I would love something that is like clean and like, you know, renovated. What would be your dream property? My dream property would look a lot like Sarah Jessica Parker's Greenwich uh, of Village course, townhouse. Of course. That mix of like, you know that everything is fully renovated in there, <laughs> but it still has that like charm, you know, that like old charm books everywhere. Like of that's course. so important to me, that warmth. I don't know. I think home is like this chance to create some kind of peace in the chaos, you know? I hate to be home. I'm never home. I love I, like home. I'm I don't know. I think it's like I didn't really enjoy being home as a kid. Like my parents separated. I was 7, so I had a room at my dad's, a room at my mom's, and then my mom moved to the suburb and my dad to like another area in Quebec. So I have no like real attachment to like the real estate of the home. So for you in your life, what does the idea of home mean to you? It's weird. It's not that positive. So I'm not too attached to the physical space, though I am extremely attached to my neighborhood. Um, I live in a neighborhood in Montreal called the Myland. Um, it's it's really central in that sort of typical hipstery, bohemian, um, sort of Montreal setting that people love. So I live so close to the bagels, you guys. It's like I can literally wake up and a minute later be at the bagel shop and get a bagel. Like it's really close to my house. Like you're so attached to the Mile End neighborhood. Like it's such it's, a part of you. You know what? It was a dream to for me to live there. When I was a teenager, I was like, this is the coolest area. It's also the area where, you know, French and English mix. It's the area where you have a big Jewish community. The Hasidic community is big there. Um, it's fairly diverse. It's very dynamic. It's very, it used to be very artsy, like younger. Now it's like older creatives who, who live around there. Um, it's been gentrified a little bit, but gentrification in Montreal is nothing like gentrification in other cities. Uh, of course, like the city is being taken over by Airbnb and by... I'm fed up of Airbnb. <laughs> I'm fed up. Make it illegal. Make it illegal. Um... So yeah, location is everything to me. But the actual physical home, I don't really care about so much. Like all I want to do when I'm home is sleep. And that's <laughs> what I do. And then I wake up and I leave. So you should just live in a pod. Yeah, I feel I would be really happy in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> so what are your thoughts on how San Francisco's changed? Since the 60s? Not much, actually. Really? You don't think the city's changed dramatically? Well, uh, we're still people, aren't we? I mean, flawed, narcissistic, and doing our best. Anna Madrigal, the matriarch of Tales of the City. Tales of the City is this epic queer story. It's a world that was created by Armistead Maupin in the 70s. He started writing stories for the San Francisco Chronicle. Eventually, he wrote books 
And all of that world was adapted in a miniseries on TV in the 90s that was quite groundbreaking. And now we're back. So Tales of the City has yet a new life happening right now on Netflix in this great reboot. And we're back at 28 Barbary Lane, which is sort of the house that is the heart of Tales of the City. It's where all the characters live. And one of the things that I love, and it was present in the 90s series and the books, and especially in this new version, there is this feeling of a queer utopia. And I feel like a lot of queer narratives we see in film and television are about a queer person confronting the hetero mainstream. But in this iteration, it really feels like there almost aren't straight people. And the queer characters get to confront their inner conflicts instead of these big external ones. Writer and producer Lauren Morelli, who got her start on Orange is the New Black, was given the keys to 28 Barbary Lane. We talked to her about the special world created by Armistead Maupin. When I read the books, I remember saying to Armistead how struck I was by the fact that he was writing characters in the late 70s who were just living their lives. It, it, it still feels so radical to me. And he was like, well, of course, it's like in the ordinariness that it becomes radical. And I was like, oh, right. Because now we're living in this period where I think we get to see our stories, but it's, number one, either in relationship to straightness or it's we get to like suffer and die and feel pain because of our identities. It's never just like, or what if we were just living our lives? But the show is definitely not for a queer audience only. Yeah, I it, hope so. I think it's really cool for, for straights because it tackles so many very intimate and personal issues, transsexuality or being an HIV discordant couple, which mm-hmm. I have never seen on the screen. Yeah, I... And, you know, it's interesting. I hired an all-queer writer's room because it felt really, like, I understand my own queerness, and that's a very specific thing, and it looks very different from your queerness or your queerness or someone who's a different race or different gender identity, whatever it is. And I think all of that ended up on screen, which is really exciting. But it's also never a conversation about, like, we're making a show for queer people. It's like we're just telling stories about these, How I mean, there's a lot of characters, (laughs) these 20 people, and however their narrative is falling into place is how it falls into place. How did it feel to revisit San Francisco today? So much has changed in the city with money, with tech. I think that was one of the biggest challenges of this version because the tone of tales is what I love about it is it's so warm, it's so fun. We always said like it's a it's like two feet off the ground, right? It's not exactly real life. The idea of Barbary Lane, the house where everybody lives, we're sort of like, how does everybody afford this? You know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like when you start asking real questions, it all kind of begins to crumble. Right. But then you also feel a responsibility to at least point toward how unlivable San Francisco is as a place. So there are themes that we've tied in and we were sort of dealing with it with a humorous touch, I hope, uh, like a joke of how hard it would be for them to live outside. Well, of China, you even saw the, the house as a character on the for show. For sure. Mm. I feel like what New York is to sex in the city is like the fifth lady. The house, 28 Barbary Lane, is, I mean, in this case, maybe the 13th character. Yeah, <laughs> <totally>. <laughs> it's a big cast of characters, but it that there's something so significant about the house. You know, having seen the original miniseries, and I know that there are so many people that are so attached to these characters in the setting that I'm sure that for people seeing that house for the first time again after so long was such a moment. I think so. Yeah, we we screened it in San Francisco recently, and it was really amazing. Did the house get like a standing oh, ovation? Oh, for sure. Like they're like a gasp in the audience. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's really. And of course, over the past couple of years, as I've been working on the show, I've come to understand 
everything that tails means to people. Right. But then to sit in an auditorium and feel what it means right. to people who grew up with it. Wow. Yeah. Well, there's so much iconography that surrounds, you know, the novels and the miniseries. And, you know, I think at the heart of that iconography is Laura Linney as Marianne. Totally. And Olympia Dukakis as Anna. Can you take us to the day? Were you there on set when Laura and Olympia had their first scene together and what that was like? Yeah. Oh, my God. You know, there were so many moments on the show where I felt like my job was to sit down and shut up. <laughs> and and certainly any moment where they were both on set, it's like, oh, my God, these are two icons by themselves playing iconic characters. They understand the characters in ways that I probably never will, right? So my job is to just, like, let that bloom into whatever it's going to be. It was really – and I think it was so surreal for them also. You could kind of see them trying to make sense of what was happening and to step back in – I mean, even to be in Anna's apartment after 25 years away. It's nuts. Watching the show, I, I have to say I'm so grateful for um, Charlie Barnett and Mur- Murray Bartlett playing Ben and Michael. Hallelujah, uh, right? Yeah. they're First of all, they're so hot. They're so they're, hot, Can I get a Yeah, but can we just – like, let's just <laughs> – Call it out. Let's just say it's, what it is. It's unreasonable. It's unreasonable. <laughs> I mean, the chemistry is real because they're out. Yeah. You know, that's it's just real chemistry when they make out, when they talk to each other, when they're, you know, as a gay man, it felt so right just oh, to I'm see so them. I'm so glad. Yeah. Um, so spoiler alert, we need to talk about a dinner scene, which is set in episode four. Ben, who's a younger character played by Charlie Barnett, um, goes to this dinner party with Michael. Jonah, you want to describe what happens at a dinner party? Sure. This is Michael. So it's Michael's friends. It's a it's a generation up, and the dinner party is essentially exclusively. St- no, I was gonna say straight. I know because we're so used to that, right? Of, yeah, there is a sort of I mean heterosexualization of that generation of gay men to a certain extent. I don't agree, but yeah, I know you don't yeah. agree. But I but I mean I think what's so great about that scene is that there's like you know eight or ten white cisgendered gay men there is one 28 year old gay man of color at this table he's the only one and there's this cross generational cross race confrontation that happens and the older generation is this generation of men who lived through the AIDS crisis and were spent their youth saying goodbye to their friends and it's such um I'm getting emotional even talking about it now because I think the scene did such a great job of conveying the trauma mm-hmm of that moment that I do think has been forgotten by the newer generation, and that's why that confrontation is important. But it's way more complicated than that, because in the scene, these gay men are sort of using this trauma as an excuse to position themselves that they can say whatever they want to say. So during the course of their dinner conversation, one of the men um, refers to a transgender woman as a tranny. It's full of trannies. (laughs) And Ben, of the newer generation, is hesitant, but he does, you know, end up calling out this person and, and really gently saying... I don't think that we use that word. This is not a word that we use anymore. Sorry? Tranny, it's offensive, and, and using it to insult each other, that's, that's really offensive, so. I just don't really appreciate hey. that we have to be police. At a fucking gay dinner party. Thank you, exactly. Is this a Bordeaux? A bunch of fags bullshitting around a table. Probably doesn't like the word fag either. Aren't we just talking about Machu Picchu? <laughs> what did that confrontation 
mean for you? What was the planning? What what brought you to that moment as the showrunner? I feel really passionate about how, as a community, we have a lot of stuff that I think we're not dealing with. We have a lot of intergenerational resentment. We have a lot of intersectionality that's not being talked about. And I think because our stories aren't told a lot, when they are told, we're depicted as a monolith, right? And politically, I understand that it's imp- been important for a long time for us to portray ourselves like that. We're united, we're one, when in fact, we are not. So it felt like this was an opportunity to break some of that open. And it's a thing I see in my own life all the time. And I think, as you just said so beautifully, we have a generation of people who survived something and have never been able to properly grieve it. They they haven't been able to grieve within the community, let alone publicly, right? Like it's just been completely erased. And so there's this rigidity around like, don't you dare tell me what words I get to say and don't say and I think it's happening in both directions right like there's the generation who's above us who's like I get to say tranny if I want to say tranny and then I can see it happening with the generation below me right that generation is starting to identify themselves in ways that I can't even begin to understand and my first instinct sometimes is like a what right (laughs) instead of like talk to me about that Mm -hmm. tell me why that makes sense for you tell me why that feels good and like we gotta start I think, fostering that dialogue. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm DeLon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I get the sense that you have a feeling of a strong responsibility Mm. to queer representation, not only on screen, but behind the scenes as well. I think you even mentioned that, you know, if you were casting the character of Anna today, you would feel a responsibility that it should be played by an actual trans woman. Absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, we found a way, um, there's a flashback episode to 1966. Oh, I'm so excited for that. I haven't seen that one yet. So uh, Jen Richards, who's a phenomenal trans woman, plays Anna in the flashback. Oh, that's so great. And Daniela Vega plays her friend, right, from The Fantastic Woman. I was so excited to see that. It's really incredible. It felt like because we were in this really tenuous position, frankly, of having Olympia play Anna, because she played the role so beautifully in the past and we needed to honor that, how did we comment on that and how do we continue to push the envelope forward? So, yes, it felt like you do that on screen, but you also do that behind the camera and make sure that there are trans voices represented on every level. Is that when you're dealing with higher ups involved in this industry and and making things like that happen, is it something you have to fight for to get? Yes and no. I'm very fortunate to be making this show at Netflix. Uh, There was not a single note, and I mean that literally, about like, could you explain this? Or like, what if people don't understand Jake's identity or whatever? I mean, it was just like, I felt like we were raising the rainbow flag and then Netflix would be like, but could it be higher? (laughs) You know? Yeah. Um, But I will say, you know, when you say I want an all queer writer's room, it's really interesting to watch people question it. It's really interesting to watch people be like, but why? 
you're like, well, do you ever question whether they're all straight writers' mm. rooms yeah. or all white writers' rooms or whatever it is? It's like, well, because we got to, you know, you have to sort of overcorrect in order to make sure that people are getting a seat at the table. I think it's so cool now that we're having these conversations about like the building of a show and behind the scenes in a way that I don't think we've ever really gotten before. Mm. I think we kind of saw this in the fashion industry where like for so long there's like editors and stylists that have just been in the background, totally. but now they're stars. And I feel like we're kind of seeing the same thing with showrunners. I know this might be such a dumb question, but what does being a showrunner actually entail? Because I feel like it's just this buzzword that we're hearing all the time <laughs> totally. now. <laughs> yeah. But like, what is the actual... Job. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great question. I don't even think my mom necessarily understands it. Um, the way I have learned how to describe it is if you think of a television show as a corporation, the showrunner is the CEO. So it's like right. the biggest. Even budgets? I'm, it's not only yes, creative. Which I is, thought it was only creative. Which is why it doesn't make sense <laughs> right. at all, right? Like I'm a writer and then I became a showrunner and suddenly I was handed budgets and like had to pretend like I knew what I was doing. <laughs> It's did crazy. You, do you have a mentor? How did you learn that? I freaked out mostly. Right. I did a real geeky thing because that's my vibe. And I read like management books because right. I just felt like suddenly I'm going to be in charge of people. And nothing I've done to this point as a writer would have prepared me for that. This is about more than business, ladies. I'm telling you how to survive. So you're associating with the criminal element? In case you ain't noticed, this place is full of criminals. And we're two of them. Three, if you include Cuckoo over here. You started on Orange is the New Black as a writer in the writer's room. Yeah. You said having no um, previous TV experience. It's been such a journey. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel extraordinarily lucky, first of all. You know, yeah. I mean, when I got hired on Orange, Netflix was not, Netflix was a DVD company, right? Yeah. So it was like, when I got hired, it wasn't like, oh my God, congratulations, you did it. It was like, oh, you're writing like a webisode? You know, like people couldn't. <laughs> right. And I, there was no way, obviously, for me to foresee what it was going to be, which I think has been useful useful for me to kind of be inside of it and not be quite sure what exactly is happening. You know, like I don't have a total perspective on it yeah. yet, if that makes sense. I feel like, you know, in the way that Tales is opening so many new discussions, that's exactly mm. what Orange did. Mm. When you look back on your time on the show, especially as a writer, and getting the chance as a writer to start these discussions that mm. really shift personal narratives and people being able to see themselves and recognize themselves and also just change the cultural narrative as well. Is there something you look back on as being really proud of in terms of story that you contributed to Orange? Oh my gosh. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot, but if there's one that stands out for you. You know, I wrote an episode, I believe it was season three, and it was Big Boo, who's played by Leah Delaria. Um, it was her flashback. And I got a bee in my bonnet about her having a sex scene. I just felt like there was space, you know, even when we're given queer stories, they look like one thing and like lesbian sex often looks like, I don't know, you're just like making out super hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and to see a butch lesbian on television get to be sexualized felt, I don't know, I was just really like excited about it and really pushed for it. And it was so amazing to be on set and watch Leah bring it to life. Yeah. What do you think the legacy of Orange is the New Black might look like moving forward? I think I can say this because I don't feel like it 
was mine. I feel like I played a very small part. I think Genji Kohan changed television. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think she taught us what it can look like. And I think she, how revolutionary to put those women, such a diverse cast, on television and then to have it have the response it got, right? Like, I remember first season being in the room. Before it had come out, I was sort of like, who's going to watch this? Like, I was like, there's like 10 lesbians in Wisconsin who are going to be very into this, you know? (laughs) And then to be like, no, 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 this is what people are hungry for. Like, we want to see ourselves reflected on television. Um, It was just such a lesson for all of us, right? It just really meant it changed. Let's talk about your own queerness that you sort of, it's it's been sort of a parallel um, story in, in, in the last eight years um what has changed in the last eight years in in relation to your own queerness well i came out (laughs) and in fact had no idea that i was queer right uh until what age 30 30 yeah wow so you lived your life as a straight woman until the age of 30 basically never did you uh, ask yourself questions before that never 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 no experience never none okay um you know in retrospect there are a thousand things i could tell you where you'd be like clearly you were gay, right? Like, like in retrospect, I'm like, oh, wow, I was like really into Ani DeFranco. And was just like going to Ani DeFranco right. concerts being like, oh my God, she's so authentic, you know? Like, uh. <laughs> or like I kissed a girl in high school, but at the time it was like, Female sexuality is so tricky, right? And we don't really talk about it a lot. And I think it was like, oh, girls just experiment. Like it never made me question anything. And I grew up in Pittsburgh and there wasn't a lot of representation for women. And um, I just never even – and I think also like I was just a straight A, like I'm going to do it right kind right. of kid. <laughs> so I was checking boxes instead of being like, am I gay? And now that I'm aware of my sexuality and out and I'm – God, I'm so – like, I just love being a part of the community. And part of me grieves for that period of my life when I didn't know and mm-hmm. could have been a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think a part of it means now that I get to really feel a lot of pride about it, which is really cool. What do you think is your role in all of these chosen families? Like, the mm-hmm. writer's room is one. 28 Barbary Lane is one. Orange is the New Black is one. You have your own in your personal life. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems that you're at the center of this really incredible galaxy Mm. of queer creatives. Mm. How does it feel like to be in this moment right now? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Like I need a Xanax. Um, (laughs) I I really feel so passionate about it. I, I really love mentoring. I really love making sure other people know that they get to come to the table and that like once you're at the table then it's your responsibility to go and like make more like I don't want to keep you in this little room like it's now your job to like go and make your own queer shows because this is how we're going to keep cracking yeah. up in the universe and if I can champion those people I I feel like whatever power I've been handed is very very important and I I want to handle it responsibly and and allow it to really make sure that everybody else is being fostered in the way they deserve to be. I think that comes through like so strongly from just talking to you today and like your energy and just it's it's easy when someone does finally get a seat at the table just to be like this is my spot now I have to protect it but to go even further and open that up to other people is so amazing and inspiring and important and I feel like what's interesting about Orange is the New Black and and Tales of the City just in terms of like wrapping it all up and putting it together is this idea of like continuity. And as much Mm. as there might be these confrontations between generations, we see it on Orange is the New Black with the older characters and the newer characters, this clash. But there is still this 
this line that runs through all of us. Mm. Yeah. Lauren Morelli, thank you so much for this talk. Thank you so thank much. You. This was, thank you so much. I could have done thank this you. for hours. I was too. Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? This week we're obsessed with sales. <laughs> And not making sales at like a shitty customer service job. We're talking shopping. Okay. Shopping. Shopping during the two best times of the year. So right after Christmas, up until the end of January, and basically mid-June to mid-July, when everything is like 30, 40, 50% off, or even better, when stuff is an additional 50% off the already marked down price. I get so excited. Trenton, do you think it's a coincidence that that sales season starts during Pride Month? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not. People need to look good. So when you see a sale at a store, how do you react? Do you physically get excited? I do. Um, It also obviously depends on the store. Like, you know, the stores that you walk by and they've been going out of business for like 10 years and they still have these posters like last two days. Like, no. But like when I pass by um, a store that I love, like there's a record store here in Montreal called Autant Trois Tours. And they usually have like a Boxing Day sale and like all the records are like 25% off. And that's where I really like go a bit nuts. I think there's an ironic experience for me with like going into the mall or going into the big store and just like looking for the most like normcore, basic. It's I don't know, like it's just my relationship to these like really weird contemporary times. And I sort of feel comfortable in that environment it's do you really usually strange. go in knowing what you want oh, or never. do you just go in and like let yourself be inspired i know you love winners oh my god <laughs> so winners is my life uh i go to winners to numb every emotion uh joy <laughs> sadness <laughs> excitement i just go into winners um i go especially in the sportswear section even <sighs> though i'm not very active and i wasting money again and i'm Thomas. and i'm i'm always looking for basically the same thing which is always like black sports pants i'm obsessed <laughs> with those i have so many and shorts you like shorts. and shorts also in the summer um but what is it about winners that like is this escape for you oh my god i get so high from the surprise i get so <laughs> high i get a dopamine high from figuring out you know oh my god this 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 model is on sale and they have my size and it's like reminds me of my thrift store shopping days when i was a teenager and you walk into a thrift store you don't know what you're going to find i just love the adventure but you know that like for people with actual um shopping addiction being yeah. very sensitive to sales and i i would identify as a shopping addict is a sign of the disease it's a sign of the addiction for sure that's you have to be careful like it's like it's sort of like you know like going out and drinking you have to know your limit i used to get into this trap where i would just be buying things because the sale was so good and not because i actually wanted the item right and marie kondo changed that for me (laughs) we spoke about her in season one but i'm telling you like since i did the decluttering process even though i still love shopping and i still love a sale more than anything i am still like selective about what i'm bringing into my life i 
have a good shopping. I mean, it's a little depressing. <laughs> um, I went on a road trip with a friend and Hurricane Irene was about to hit the East Coast. And we're like, we're going to we're going to Maine, but we're going to stop in New Hampshire because there's this like outlet town. There's yes. this town, I think it's called Conway full of outlets from all the most basic brands you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm basic, so I was happy. Um, so just like the custom agent is like, you know there's a hurricane about to hit Maine. Like, why are you going there? Or like, we have one life to live. Let's we're do this. We're shopping. So we're go- we get to Conway. The sky is literally darkening by the second. Like, it's just <laughs> getting kind of crazy. And I just get in this really sick zone where I'm like, I need to shop. I need to spend money. And I know that's my disease. I know it's my just this addiction to like feel that void and I spent so much. But I feel like we should always be shopping with the threat of a hurricane. It adds to it was such the, a scene. the drama and it, it it puts something on the line. Like when you're putting your life on the line to shop, it must be so much more fun. Like did you so have the best time? I it was it was a good story. I'm, t- <laughs> I'm telling you that story. So we get out we get out of the outlets and we just get in the car. It starts pouring like i just spent like over a thousand dollars in that in that town it's not a it's not cute it's really not cute yeah it's and that experience stayed with me because i was like that is such a metaphor for the culture we live in it's like we're gonna shop ourselves to death with climate change (laughs) with politics with everything that's happening we're just like no 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 wait a second there's a sale somewhere i gotta shop myself to death it's not sustainable. There's we, there's no. too much crap in that world. Honestly, you have to be selective. Like the question that you need to ask yourself is, do you want to carry this item with you throughout the rest of your life or throughout your next move? You know, like if I'm going to move, I have to think about all the shit that I am bringing with me. It's sort of like the things that you own are sort of like these like passengers with you, mm-hmm. you know? Wow. And do you really want to be and I'm saying this as someone who's not a minimalist. So like I You're am not. I am lugging a lot of shit with me, but maybe it's time for like a fresh start, you know, and maybe maybe my next home will be a minimalist utopia. Right. But a 50% off tag is so erotic. (laughs) (laughs) Very true. It's very true. Chosen Family is produced by me, Thomas LeBlanc. And me, Trana Winter. Our talent producer on this episode was Catherine Stockhausen. Big thanks to the folks at the Inside Out Festival in Toronto. Our editor-producer is Crystal Duhame. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Judy Zigu and Olivia Pasquarelli are our digital producers. Tanya Springer is the senior producer of CBC Podcasts, and Arif Narani is the executive producer. Check out our Instagram at CBC Podcasts and give the account a follow. You'll find lots of behind-the-scenes content and photos as the season goes on. Also, join our Facebook group. Don't send us DMs. If you want to talk to us about the show, join the Facebook group. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Phi Studio. Listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't already, be sure to check out season one. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.